Hello, you're listening to Season 1, Episode 8 of the NeuroDescent Podcast. I'm Nick Sutorelu, I'm a neurodivergent scholar, and with me is Molly Friesenborg. Hey, I'm Molly. I am a nonprofit professional, work in education, social justice, and uh, happen to be married to this researcher. <laughs> so, our podcast features a lot of research, and in this season, we've been researching the history of uh, the kinds of knowledge that people have had about the mind and the things that affect it. Um, we've been doing this by looking at ideas about demons and demonic possession. You know, obviously what you go to when you think of neurodivergence. Yes, absolutely. So we have been looking at the ideas that people throughout history have had about demons, demonic possession, and exorcism. You guys have all met our dog in this episode, so I think you might be meeting our cat, if you can hear them right now. <laughs> so, our cat is crying out like he's been possessed by a demon, I guess. So Maybe it was a witch. <laughs> so, one of my goals with picking this topic has been to challenge our ideas about the way people who lived a thousand years ago or more might have understood the mind. And I want to suggest that... We may have... Basically, want... Nick doesn't think history is always getting better and the way that we deal with mental illness and mental differences in modern medicine might even be a little worse. So let's talk about how we've done it throughout history and see what it looks like. Yeah, at least, at least there may have been something profoundly important about these ideas and practices that we've lost, right? Um, although, I'm not so see sure... See how he didn't like how I took the nuance out of it there? He had to put it back in. <laughs> although... What we're going to talk about today doesn't really support that idea. Um, <laughs> because witches! Right. <laughs> so, but, but to elaborate on this idea, um, people like me, people who are formally educated white Westerners, we, we tend to dismiss ancient and medieval ideas about demons and exorcisms, um, not, only, not only because we think they are untrue, but also because we think they are dangerous. Um, so we have some vague association between these ideas about demons and how they possess us, and then on the other hand, persecution and violence. So we have seen some examples of this in, in season one. We have seen examples of how ideas about demons can be used toward oppressive ends. Um, but a lot of what we've been talking about has been uh, in an attempt to try to pull out something more positive or... Um, useful from these things. AKA looking at these exorcisms almost as a form of community or practitioner like care um, as opposed to calling you a demon so that I can do whatever I want to you. Yeah, but we did talk about St. Jerome in episode 3. That dude's a bummer! Yeah, so in episode 3 we talked about St. Jerome. He lived from around 340 to 420 AD. And he's best known as having translated the Gospels into Latin. And um, as you might recall, Jerome thought sex was dirty and thought everyone who did it was unclean. Along with like eating and, you know, any other kind of anything that might bring anyone joy on mm -hmm. earth. I have to remind us also that Jerome was not himself a virgin. He admits to not being a virgin. Um, so we looked at the stories he told about exorcisms in a biography he wrote about his friend St. Hilarion. Also, 
Not a cool guy, in my personal opinion. <laughs> so, as you might recall, St. Jerome's restrictive ideas about gender roles and sexuality were interwoven with the ideas about demons, possession, and exorcism. And we can see that in one of the examples that we're actually going to review right now. So I want to review one of these stories we told in episode three because I think it's a nice comparison to today's story. So I'm going to tell you uh, the story that Jerome tells of one of God's virgins who was possessed by a demon. Ugh, everything about that sentence just, I don't, ugh. <laughs> so this is taken from St. Jerome's publication, The Life of Hilarion. And uh, again, he describes the young woman as one of God's virgins. And he writes that a young man in Gaza was apparently attracted to this young woman. He had used all the tricks he had to seduce her. And Jerome explains that he had already tried those touches, jests, nods, and whispers, which so commonly lead to the destruction of virginity. Thousands of years, and men still haven't learned that no means no. It's <laughs> all the true. story's about. It's disgusting. <laughs> so not ready to give up, this young man, who should have known that no means no, instead went to a magician to learn how to control the young woman. Or... Um, you know, I use the word magician here, but we might also translate this as witch. I'll just, like, say once again, like, the number one thing I keep learning over and over again about looking at these things in history is that people are freaking people. And if they don't have, like, I don't know, the guy who's going to teach them how to, like, insult women into having sex on YouTube, then they're going to go to this guy. <laughs> it's all the same. So, so Jer Jerome tells us that this magician or witch was a priest of Asclepius. As you might recall, Asclepius is the god that Hippocrates was associated AKA with. AKA who Jerome wanted you to know Jesus was better than. So that's the dynamic going on here. Absolutely. So um, Jerome tells us that Asclepius does not heal souls, but destroys them. So anyway, the young man completes a year of training with this magician priest. For the record, if it's a year of training of how to get someone to sleep with you who does not want to sleep with you... This might be the first time I've ever agreed with Jerome. <laughs> um, so the young man completes a year of training with this magician priest, and then he returns to bury magical items under the young woman's house. I'm so angry! <laughs> and, and afterwards, the young woman becomes distressed. So Jerome... Yeah, her stalker came back! <laughs> so Jerome writes, Thereupon the maid began to show signs of insanity to throw away the covering of her head, tear her hair, gnash her teeth, and loudly call the youth by name. Her intense affection had become a frenzy. So, interestingly, the story... So now she likes him. I hate this story so much. I hated it in episode three. I hate it now. <laughs> the story suggests that the young woman ends up having feelings for the young man, but that they're caused by a demon that only enters her after the young man uses evil Asclepius magic. And so the young man's parents, or the young woman's parents, reach out to get the help of an exorcist, and they take her to see Hilarion, who is an exorcist. And when the young woman arrives, she immediately comes face to face with Hilarion, and that's when the demon begins to howl and confess. So the demon claims that he's the real victim here, and he says he was forced to do it by the young man. And... 
Hilarion asks the demon why he entered the young woman, and the demon says to preserve her as a virgin, which Hilarion dismisses as obvious lies, right? And one of the things that we pointed out in episode three is that uh, one thing that makes this story so different is that this story is the only one in that in that publication that talks about a woman who is possessed by a demon. Interestingly, as long as a man put it there, I guess it can count. <laughs> Ugh. So Jerome, Jerome then writes that Hilarion sharply rebuked the virgin for having, by her conduct, given an opportunity for the demon to enter. <laughs> it's still her fault. Yes. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I can't even get through this story. I just can't do it. It's terrible. <laughs> this is the only one of the exorcism stories in the life of Hilarion where Hilarion blames the victim for having played a part in their possession. And it's the only woman. And it's the only woman. All of the that other ones right. all of the other ones are men. Oh, although there is one camel. Even the camel's not to blame, like the woman. <laughs> That's right. Although we didn't really talk about this in episode three, this story isn't has in it an example of the way that early Christians saw witchcraft. Um, so Jerome describes the ma a man studying under the tutelage of a, of a follower of Asclepius. And Asclepius was considered by Jerome and other Christian writers to be a pagan idol. Which is to say he was a false idol created by the devil to lure people away from the one true god, the Christian god. Please don't look over here how all of our rituals resemble pagan, pagan rituals. So interestingly... Jerome doesn't deny that this magic is, can have real effects. In fact, mm. he suggests that it does. Um, it's pretty ironic that, like, you're like, yeah, those people do have power. Mm-hmm. But ultimately but what, what he... they're not real. Also. Ultimately what Jerome says, though, is that... Or, or what other... Jerome and other people like him say is that those effects are caused by the devil. Right. That makes logical sense in their own little internal consistency i suppose yeah right so um a historian named hans peter brodel uh explains the views of early christians like saint jerome and here's what he writes magic from a very early point in christian history was closely related to idolatry magicians received their powers in return for their worship of pagan idols who were were of course really devils so pharaoh's magicians were able to work their wonders so in other words, Christian writers have long noted the presence and power of witches. And in this episode, episode eight, we're going to dig deeper into witchcraft in Christian Europe. So over a thousand years after St. Jerome lived, Europeans became a lot more concerned about witches. So in this episode, we're going to start looking at the knowledge that they produced about witches during what we could call the European witch hunt. They become more concerned about witches, really, though, or just, you know, women trying to do things they weren't supposed to do. Well, undoubtedly, that was part of it. <laughs> That's definitely a big part. Anyway, we're going to look at this for what it can tell us about what they thought about the mind and its ailments. And we're also going to start trying to see where our ideas about the dangerousness of demonic women. possession and witchcraft and women comes from. And I'll just be over here being angry about gender nonsense and why these men even got to write anything ever and why we still talk about it because girl. <laughs>
So witches became a major concern for the church and the state uh, throughout medieval Europe. And you might recall from episode four, when we talked about Marjorie Kemp, that she was also accused of witchcraft. In, she was a woman. She was. In her autobiography, she tells us that she was accused of being a witch and a heretic. And in one case, there was a crowd that threatened to kill her. And she barely escaped and was not punished for witchcraft. Mostly probably because she was kind of upper class. Perhaps. Um, but also because she lived a century before this stuff really heated up. Ah, uh, okay. So what we're going to start talking about happens a little bit after. So a century later, Marjorie probably would have been burned. Pretty good chance of it. So our topic for today um, is, is one that played a very important role in this intensification of the witch hunts. It's a book called The Malleus Maleficarum. That's its title in English. It's frankly a great or, name. I'm sorry. In Latin. That's its title in Latin. Um, it's the English translation is the hammer of witches. Dun, dun, dun. Mm -hmm. So the Malleus Maleficarum, which I'm just going to say in Latin for, throughout this episode, because I like saying it. Um, <laughs> the Malleus Maleficarum was written by a man named Heinrich Kramer, who as a small aside, when Nick started telling me he was reading the Malleus Maleficarum, like I kept trying to call it the magnificent, like something like i couldn't get the words right because i'm like witches are cool this is positive so like i just like couldn't say it wrong like yeah. say it right I don't know. the magnificent malleus maleficar i know right it sounds <laughs> great let's go do some witchery okay. i would be burned at the stake too for the record in case anyone was unclear <laughs> yes you would yeah <laughs> so so would you though so it's okay i mean they might kill you a different way but definitely possibly. be a heretic nonetheless yeah right oh definitely um so so this guy, Kramer, um, he also had a co-author named Jacob Spranger. But in my research, I found that historians tend to think that he didn't contribute a lot to the actual writing of the book. Um, the historian that I cited before, Hans-Peter Brodel, he explains that Spranger was likely a strategic choice as a co-author since... He was the big name. He was a big name. He was, quote far more distinguished and far less contentious than uh, Kramer. So he was a big name and people didn't hate him quite to the same extent that they Nick, hated Have you ever Kramer. thought about getting a co-offer like that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I could use one. Actually, that's why you're here, Molly. <laughs> I'm not sure I have a bigger name, but look. But I, hey, people I would hate be you burned less. at the witch. That's at true. The stake, so. Um, so let's talk about this primary author of the Malleus Maleficarum, Heinrich Kramer. So he was born around 1430, so right up about the end of Marjorie Kemp's life. And he died around 1505, and he lived in Central Europe. He lived his life in various parts of what we might call, or, or what today we know as the Holy Roman Empire. And so this would include parts of Italy, or what it's today, Italy, Germany, Austria. And for those of you following along with some social media trends at the moment, I did mock Nick mercilessly every time I looked over and he was like Googling the Holy Roman Empire. And I'm like, oh, you're such a white man. Yeah, but that's the Roman Empire. Yeah, okay. Wanting to make that <laughs> distinction part of the thing. So as a young man, Kramer joined the Dominican Order 
and he was eventually appointed to be an official in the Inquisition. And so in other words, Kramer became an inquisitor. The Pope officially granted Kramer the job of inquisitor and gave him the power to prosecute witches. And I read a book by Hans Peter Brodel, um, who is a historian, and in the, in the book, Brodel suggests that Kramer wrote the book, wrote the Malleus Maleficarum directly after an embarrassing and frustrating experience in the town of Innsbruck. Wait, 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 wait. You're telling me he wrote this, like, all-important kill the witches book because a woman made him mad? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. A, a woman made him look sad, and he had to go write a giant book around it. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, I hate that we're doing a whole Basically, episode like on that. ancient incels. <laughs> this... this experience took place in the town of Innsbruck, which is today in what it's we know. It's a really lovely little town. It is a really lovely little town in today located in Austria. Um, so at the time, though, it was part of the Holy Roman Empire, and it fell under his jurisdiction as an inquisitor. So Kramer traveled there pretty much immediately after he was, uh, he was given this job as inquisitor, and he accused several citizens in the town of Inquisitor basically being a fancy word for witch hunter. Yeah. Or heretic hunter, generally. I speaking. mean, he was he was officially given this role of of trying to hunt out and punish witchcraft and, as you said, also heresy more generally, because often witchcraft is understood as heresy, as a crime against god or the christian god the specifically and the church i think that's an important distinction i definitely think it's an important distinction though i also think it's important to realize that people like kramer don't see a distinction correct hence why i think it's an important distinction <laughs> so brodel writes about one of these trials that took place in innsbruck and it was a trial of a woman named helena scheuberin uh, it took place on October 29th, 1485. Oh, it's its anniversary. Like, yeah, like it's nearly... It's like we're like, ready for Halloween or Samhain, <laughs> Sam, whatever like you would call it. Samhain. Nearly 538 years ago to the day of this recording session. <laughs> so, Brodel explains this trial in his book, and he says that Scheuberin was a prominent woman in Innsbruck, but... That's problem already. We're not supposed to be prominent, us women. Well, I mean, you could be a prominent, well-behaved, well-mannered woman. Ah, uh, yes. As long as you stay quiet, just let people look at you. Right. I mean, like, rich men need wives who they can bring out in public and have them look Make them womanly. Look like they have minions. Right. Um, but this woman, she had a reputation for being, quote, an aggressive, independent woman who was not afraid to speak her mind. Ah, <sighs> damn. So Kramer, nothing's changed. For Kramer, that reputation itself was already evidence that she's a witch. Sending off those witch flags. <laughs> I mean, in the Malleus Maleficarum, they explain that that is pretty much evidence of, of wait, guilt. Wait, 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 no, tell me more. How exactly do they say that in the Malleus Maleficarum? I know you read it all. Give me your like, give me your paraphrased version of how they say like, call independent and outspoken bad. I want to hear the language they use. <laughs> How do they do it? Um, it's not that they say, it's not that they say those things necessarily, although maybe a little bit that too. But what I'm referring to is that having a reputation among 
townsfolk as being a witch is itself evidence that the person is probably a witch. So that's... But they're still you saying be a witch. They didn't, like, directly say, like, women who talk are probably witches. <laughs> like... Um, I think, I think to some extent you could say that they do, but I'm going to leave that for episode two. Ah, okay. Have or, to or wait not, for next episode. Right. So we're going to do two episodes on this. It's not going to be episode two. It'll be episode nine. Um, we're going to do two episodes on the Malleus Maleficarum. And I think that that set of questions is going to be best answered then. All right. Um, I will see you all at episode two. Cause I, um, episode nine, nine, part two part of the two Malleus of Maleficarum because, um, Let's rip that shit to shreds. Okay. Yeah, it'll be Moving great. on. Okay, so um, Shoiberin has this reputation, and so Kramer looks into her, and he eventually charges her with witchcraft. He accuses her of being a witch, and he brings her to this trial. <laughs> so wait, when he looked into her, did he find anything other than she says things? I'm not entirely sure. Um, cool, cool, cool. Just wanted to know if we had anything to point to. But anyway, this this trial is a part is a place where he's going to try to get more information from her. He's going to try to extract a confession. So, trial or interrogation? Honestly, one might argue that it is more an interrogation. Yeah, that's what uh, it sounds like. So, to make matters worse... Doesn't sound like she's going to make her case. <laughs> so, to make matters worse for Scheuberin, um, Brodel writes that, quote, not, not long after the Inquisitor had first arrived in Innsbruck with the stated intention of bringing witches to justice... Scheuberin had passed him in the street, spat, and said publicly, Fee on you, you bad monk. May the falling evil take you. I love her. Yeah, she's pretty awesome. I love her so much. <laughs> so, Fee on you, you black monk. I want to <laughs> use that. <laughs> so to make matters even worse for her, Scheuberin failed to attend many of Kramer's sermons. She didn't go. And when she did attend one, she interrupted it by yelling. So when she did attend one, she interrupted it by, quote, proclaiming that she believed Kramer to be an evil man in league with the devil. Fucking love her. <laughs> and um, just in case you were wondering, I'm agree. Just, just so we're clear. <laughs> so Heinrich Kramer. Fee on you, you black monk. So <laughs> Heinrich Kramer was pretty sure that Scheuberin was a witch, and he brings... There's no other reason he could she could not like him. I mean... <laughs> and so he questions her on about these charges of witchcraft. So during the trial, he, <laughs> Kramer is the prosecutor, but other people, other dignitaries are in the room, other officials from the, the town of Innsbruck. I bet she didn't lick their boots either. Probably not, but they don't seem to have been quite as angry about it. Um, so Kramer questions Scheuberin about a lot of things, but notably he asks her a lot of questions about her sexual history. And this starts to make these other men in the room quite uncomfortable. In part because they don't really see what it has to do with witchcraft. Oh yeah, that's because they forgot. It's actually just about hating women. So anyway, they, they get uncomfortable. They call for a recess. And during the recess, they get a defense lawyer to come. And okay, guys, showing up. Right, so the lawyer comes Doing and... Doing the bare minimum. The lawyer comes and he objects to all of this and gets the charges dropped. And afterwards, the bishop... I was sure this story was going to end with her being burned at the stake. No. This is amazing. So the bishop, the bishop tells Kramer to leave. Innsbruck. This and... doesn't go well for that bishop, does it? 
just come back to bite me. Uh, no, I mean, I'm like, sorry. I'll wait. Keep going. I, I think it, it turns out fine for him. And, and I think this is kind of a good demonstration of the fact that even though there was all this like witch hunting going on, it's not that it's not that it was necessarily all agreed upon. Mm. I mean, there is it's contested, right? People yeah, are. It's are not like everyone was like, other. yes. The church says kill all the women who say things, yeah. therefore we're all on board. So they don't all just like nod along and go, okay, yes, yes, we'll do that. Um, even though, even though they, it's not that they don't, they don't disagree that witchcraft is real. They disagree that this person that is Kramer's witch. ideas about witchcraft are good. Yeah. So even they knew he was just an incel. <laughs> right. So these, these men who are, you know, prominent men in, in the town of Innsbruck would probably have believed that witchcraft was real, but they had a different idea about what it was, and they found Kramer's ideas objectionable, especially this way that he links witchcraft and sexuality so closely. Mm -hmm. The other thing that it kind of makes me think about is, like, when I, th and this is obviously not backed by the kind of research, so, you know, anecdotal Molly talking here, but... When I think about who was persecuted as, as witches and, and like the history of women being demonized in this way and the skill sets they have being demonized in this way, they often are somewhat recluses, though, when I think of who those women are. And it sounds like she was a very prominent, like, yeah. engaged in society. And I wonder, and it, it just makes me think about like how the community maybe showed up for her in a way that they wouldn't have for someone who was one step removed from those prominent men who could defend her. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I think that her status and her connection to these other prominent men is, is to a large extent what saves her. Yeah. Not to mention that they made them uncomfortable. So that's kind of ironic too that like. Yeah. But I mean, why does it make her them uncomfortable? Because a prominent woman is having her sexuality questioned. As opposed to someone that they already thought of as not. Right. If like they thought this woman was dirty and promiscuous, they might not have objected to Kramer asking about her sexuality. But anyway, Kramer gets kicked out of Innsbruck. He gets asked to leave by the bishop, even though he is te he technically has jurisdiction to be there and to prosecute witches from the Pope. Great, we don't have cell phones to call your boss and get back up. Yeah, so there's there's a bit of a, a sort of, this is kind of a bold move by the bishop. And it actually, it, it unfolds over months. It takes him a while to finally just like say, get out of here. Um, I'm guessing she's just one example of who he tried to persecute in that town as well. Yeah, he's he had other folks as well that he was going after. Kramer leaves and... He's upset, and he decides... Oh, is his poor baby ego inquisitor got bruised? It did. So he decided to he decided he was going to write a manifesto about his ideas, <laughs> as every good incel we, does. We changed the channels. We did not change people. <laughs> so he goes... It's just easier to get your manifesto out now. <laughs> he goes, and he writes the Malleus Maleficarum. And I mean... His... Sorry, I've got distracted thinking about the hypocrisy of us on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. He goes and he tries to, he, he writes this, this book in an effort to explain and defend his views about what witches and witchcraft are. And um, so the people of Innsbruck would know that they were wrong. Right. And everywhere else he goes from now on. 
So the book aims to explain why and how witches should be prosecuted and ultimately punished. And of course, the punishment was usually death. I'm just saying, like, Malleus Maleficarum sounds so fun because I feel like it should be a spell book, and that's what I like and want about it. Right. Not a How to Kill Witches book. It's very disappointing. <laughs> and, um, I mean, spoiler alert from the things I heard Nick talking about reading, although um, I wouldn't have expected any book to have that much about erectile dysfunction in it, but okay, whatever. Oh, I know what you were thinking about, Mr. Kramer! <laughs> There is a lot about erectile dysfunction in this book. Spoiler! We just caused it. <laughs> so, um, in addition to talking about erectile, erectile dysfunction, the book is mostly about witchcraft. And it, it was not the only book at this time to be written about witchcraft. In fact, there are, the best name. there are lots of other theologians and scholars at this time in Europe who are writing books like this. Um... But one thing that sets this one apart is that it uses a lot of uh, narrative testimony from uh, both witnesses and witches themselves who had confessed in the book. So basically you're saying it was just the most interestingly written one? In a, lot of, in a lot of ways it becomes very interestingly written as a result it's also much more likely to conform to the ideas that common people had about witches. It feels very like confirmation biasy for people. Yeah, people with the text. People can open this up, and Not I think that many of them probably could read or open this up, but you know, theoretically, however they heard about it. I think that you know, one thing that Hans Peter Brodel argues is that these ideas are much closer to the common people's ideas about witchcraft because they came fr directly from them because Kramer and Springer put, you know, tried to record what they had learned from the common people. And I'm in that way, the Innsbruck trials didn't make it though. I'm guessing those didn't make it into the book. <laughs> in that way, it becomes more, Every it becomes easier for them to understand what, the conception of witchcraft is that Kramer is putting forth. So it feels like like the pop culture witch book as opposed to the academic, which in the church would have all been, which would have at that time been like the churchy. Yeah, book. but but I will say that it bridges both of those things very nicely. Um, it was a very influential text. It's not again, it's not the only text at this time, um, but it it is it is written in a very academic format too. It, it reflects the kinds of arguments that scholars made in their in their books at the time. I um, thought it was really funny when Nick started reading it, and I was just like, I mean, I like all this because I just get to sit around while he kind of does all the research and just hear the highlights. Um, but it's like written like an FAQ, which I find hilarious. It's true. <laughs> it's like, why do witches do evil? Because they're evil. Why should witches be killed? Because they're evil. How Why can... is it all women? Oh, turns out women are evil. <laughs> how how can they do this if God is a just God? Evil? Well, it turns out that God uses evil to test us, I guess. Anyway. That's a straightforward there about that. Anyway, um, like I said, this was the Malleus Maleficarum was an influential text. And um, in addition to the narratives that we talked about making it influential, it also had a lot of backing from church authorities. So 
I'm gonna give us some snippets from what Hans-Peter Brudel wrote about the book. So he writes, by 1500, eight editions of the Malleus had been published, and there were five more by 1520. And by the time of Kramer's death, in around 1505, his work could be found in many libraries and judicial reference collections throughout Europe, especially especially in what is today Germany. I'm sorry, I just want some wine. It's so terrible. So he goes on to explain um, the impact of the Malleus Maleficarum on how Europeans understood witches. And he says, within 50 years of the text publication, the learned definition of witchcraft had stabilized and a category of witchcraft that closely resembled that of the Malleus was widely accepted. So it almost like culturally became what defined what witchcraft was from this like vague idea that had always been around of like, you know, as an antithesis to the Christian like yeah. idea, whatever. But like it really kind of honed in and defined it in this time period. Is that correct? For the learned people, especially ah, okay. for the for the educated people who could read and write, mm -hmm. who which were, is a small portion of the population. It's a small but a portion of the one. population, and they tend to have different views about this subject than lay people, whose ideas are much more likely to be affected by the the pagan beliefs mm. that the that the uh, theologians and Christian scholars reject as false idols interesting it's interesting too with the time period because you know again this is molly bringing things so it doesn't come with all the great um citations that it does when nick brings it but uh, a lot of what i've read too about like why the rise of this focus on witchcraft and and um in this time period had actually a lot to do with coming after the plague um, and that the plague, which really peaked in like, I think, you know, mid 1300s, what we're talking about going into the 1400s here, brought to it the rise of women stepping into a lot of non-traditional roles because of the huge death counts, mm -hmm. right? And the huge amounts of widows and just other empty spaces. So similar to what we see and we think about like, you know, Rosie the Riveter, like how actually a lot of fem female opportunities came in that time of war and grief, like this big time of death. Yeah. promoted more female independence which of course that needed crushed so it's it's not just a time of plague it's also a time of war right it's a time mm. when uh there are religious wars going on between various christian groups and various christian nations throughout yeah. europe and so i think like almost as things also settle down a little bit more right they get a little more dire that's when we need to make sure we know how to put women back in their places because they ran amok when there was none of men around to control them <laughs> so so as you are you know what you're saying i think is very important for understanding the malleus maleficarum heinrich kramer believed that he was living in a time period of more witchcraft that's why that's part of why he writes this book is that aka more power taken by women for example more knowledge being brought by women right like things like you know i, I think this is probably something will come up but you know midwives right or brew witches like all things that were associated yeah. with you know women stepping in where they shouldn't be midwives in particular are a major target of the malleus maleficarum um they are closely associated with witchcraft in heinrich kramer's mind so basically 
another way to be possessed by a demon, aka having anything different about your brain or your behavior or emotions, is being a woman with thoughts and like you know knowledge and skills and shit. <laughs> so, I want to take some time to explore what you would find if you read the Malleus Maleficarum. The original was written in Latin. I've been reading an English translation that was done by a man named Montagu Summers. That's a great name. And he, he wrote this, or he translated this in the 1920s. Tell us, Montague, tell us. He was a very peculiar man himself, and he seems to have very much agreed with Heinrich Kramer. Wait, what? <laughs> Which is part of what makes his translation so problematic, is that he it's, seems to it's have... so authentic feeling. <laughs> I mean, like, he in some ways... He wants to use the worst language available. Right. So... So, Summers... He agreed in 1920? Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, he, he kind of writes in his introduction that, you know, the the women of his time, the feminists of his time, probably could have... Could use some Heinrich Kramer in their lives. Burn more at the stake. Burn them at the stake. So Look anyway. at those flappers! They have fringe everywhere! They catch fire so easily! <laughs> so... Again, this is a flawed translation, um, but you can find it online. Check our episode notes on our website, neurodescent.com. Or go to your Reddit, latest uh, Reddit incel page, and you'll probably find the same information. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so like, like we said at the beginning of the episode, we've been talking about demons and demon possession. And for the rest of this episode, I want to talk about one story of demonic possession that you can find in the Malleus Maleficarum. Just not the ED chapters. We won't be talking about erectile dysfunction quite yet, but look for it in episode two. Or ep sorry. Part two. Episode Part two of this. I told you we started, started a new season then. We just wouldn't have this numbering that's issue. That's true. This season is going to last for years. <laughs> yeah, that's that's from the autism one, not not me. I'm like, <laughs> So Kramer and Springer. filing systems. Kramer and Springer write in their book that even though demons are technically capable of possessing anyone and they don't need the help of witches, <laughs> they, it, demonic possession usually does involve witches. I feel like they just said, just because like, it doesn't make sense in any of our internal logic for women to need to be involved here. <laughs> they definitely are cause evil. <laughs> so you're not wrong. They have to spend quite a lot of time in their book trying to lay out the logical argument for why they're right and try to make a plausible statement about why why we would go about persecuting witches. And... People twisting themselves into, like, internal logical knots is so fun. <laughs> so according to the Malleus Maleficarum, witches are, are the main reason why demons possess people because witches direct them to go possess people. So witches are more powerful than demons. I was just trying to do a... You're like, that's not how it's written. I'm like, yeah, I know. I was just trying to say, like, the women have the power. Mm. Whatever. Mm. Moving on. So there are a few chapters in the book where they talk at length and, and in a sort of theoretical manner. They they do things like cite Aristotle and um, talk about his ideas about how the body and mind work. And he talk, and they talk about... They also mention physicians and things like that and, and their ideas Ultimately, they tell us that demons can enter our bodies and affect affect our bodies, but also our minds. And one of the things that they do is that they can go into our brains and draw up images from our memories. 
and then can use those to affect the way that we see the world. Interesting. It almost like feels like they're describing like trauma and PTSD as a function of the the, the demon literally bringing that back up to you. Yeah, and in that way, it, it kind of reminds me of episode six when we talked about thunder magic and the uh, thunder magic practitioners, their ideas about what demons are and what how demonic possession works. It's kind of similar in that way. Hmm. So one thing that's really interesting in this discussion of how demons cause us to have hallucinations or delusions is that the authors do not believe that demons are the only cause of these things. They are aware of natural causes for hmm. what today we might call mental illness. They explicitly compare demons' powers to the to um, frantic men and other maniacs who have a natural defect. Wow. Yeah. So, so the authors. So, is the dis distinction between the onset, like that they make, or is it between who we like and who we don't like, like the harmless maniacs and the ones who challenge my power maniacs? Yeah, I would say that um, they don't do a very good job of of ruling out the second thing that you said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not convinced that that's not part of it for sure, but they do try to talk about things like how quickly it comes on and there are some other possible distinguishing features we'll see one in the story that i'm going to tell you which is that the demon is able to sort of bring knowledge that the other that the person doesn't have mm -hmm. commonly okay. this is uh the i this the way this shows up is the person starts speaking a language they don't actually speak interesting but the demon can speak um, anyway, the, the authors of the Malleus Maleficarum, Kramer and Springer, they use the fact that there can be natural causes to these same symptoms in order to make their claims about demons seem even more realistic. So why, basically what they say is like, why wouldn't demons be able to do this since it can just like happen naturally? Makes no sense to me, but okay. <laughs> I, it, I don't, I don't get that at all. But okay. you know, as from my perspective, that seems a little like well, convenient. Um, oh. Yeah, maybe they're just natural, all natural causes, but <laughs> but nonetheless, that is how they argue it, and and I think it's worth noting that because it was apparently a somewhat convincing argument to both them and their peers at the time. So. Let me tell you this story from the Malleus Maleficarum, specifically from Summer's translation of it. I'm going to try not to interrupt five times, but when you're saying such stupid stories, it's so hard. <laughs> so this, this story is going to be told from the point of view of Heinrich Kramer. And in the story, he encounters... Shocker, his point of view. Right. He encounters a demoniac priest while he was in Rome as a young man. And he tells us that this took place in the time of Pope Pius II, which would be around 1458 to 1464. So the story begins with a man from the town of Dachau, and um, he brought his son, his only son, to Rome. And the son was a priest who had been possessed by a demon. So the father brought the son to Rome to help 
find him relief. He wants him to be exercised. Okay. And Kramer tells us that he met these two men in a cafeteria. And they sat down next to him and began talking. Were they specifically, like, there to meet with Kramer? Or he just, like, happened upon these dudes? No, they just... They just were... Just both, happened upon them. They're okay. both in the cafeteria eating together and they talk Not to each other. That's probably a terribly important detail, but... So here's here's what it says. I'll, I'll read from the, from the translation now. We saluted each other and talked together as is customary. And the father kept sighing and praying Almighty God that his journey might prove to have been successful. I felt great pity for him and began to ask what was the reason of his journey and of his sorrow. Then the father answered, Alas, I have a son possessed by a devil, and with great trouble and expense I have brought him here to be delivered. So, I mean, really nice that his dad wanted to get, like, you know, was willing to travel far for good mental health care. Yep, yep. So Kramer asks the father where his son was. And the father says that he's right here, sitting next to Kramer. Which Kramer is seems a little confused by. Um, because the man sitting next to him doesn't fit Kramer's ideas about what a demoniac would look like at first sight. So Kramer writes, I was a little frightened and looked at him closely. And because he took his food with such modesty and answered, (laughs) (laughs) and answered piously to all questions, I began to doubt that he was not possessed, but that some infirmity had happened to him. So in other words, he began to question whether this man was in fact possessed by a demon. Maybe so, he just had some natural defect. <laughs> because he didn't eat like a savage. I guess not. I guess that's the problem. Okay. Right? But he also answered questions piously. Um, he was a priest before he got, you know, ideas. So Kramer asks him to tell... So Kramer asks the demoniac priest what's going on. And this is what the demoniac priest says. A certain witch brought this evil upon me, for I was rebuking her on some matter concerned with the discipline of the church, upbraiding her rather strongly since she was of an obstinate disposition. (laughs) (laughs) And they always are. (laughs) So. And what did this obstinate witch do? So she said that after a few days I would become possessed. And the devil which possesses me has told me that a charm was placed by the witch under a certain tree, and that until it was removed, I could not be delivered. But he would not tell me which tree. What a jerk! I wouldn't know, tell you it? which tree. <laughs> so Kramer still seems pretty confused. What a powerful time of idle threats. You know? She's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you think so? Well, I'm going to curse you. And then they're just like, <laughs> spend the rest of their lives being like, I'm cursed. I can't find the tree. There's nothing I can do about it. That's nice. So Kramer, Kramer, uh, I guess it's nice right up until it winds you up, up on a up stake in the Inquisition. Right? <laughs> so Kramer, Kramer still seems confused. Um, the priest still doesn't fit his expectations of what a demoniac is like. And in particular, he says that he, he thought that the man seemed to be able to use his reason more than other demoniacs. So the demoniac explains again, I am only deprived of the use of my reason when I wish to contemplate holy things or to visit sacred places. 
For the devil specifically told me in his own words, uttered through my mouth, that because he had up to that time been much offended by my sermons to the people, he would in no way allow me to preach. Kramer still wanted some proof of what's going on, so he takes the demoniac priest to a bunch of holy sites in Rome, hoping to exorcise him. And these exorcisms seem to affect the priest, but they don't cure him. He would cry out during the exorcism, and after each attempted exorcism, quote, he showed no sign of madness or any immoderate action. So the evidence of the possession was obvious whenever the demoniac priest tried to engage in the practices of the church. When he passed any church and genuflected in honor of the glorious virgin, the devil made him thrust his tongue far out of his mouth. And when he was asked whether he could not restrain himself from doing this, <laughs> he answered, I cannot help myself at all. For so he uses all my limbs and organs, my neck, my tongue, and my lungs whenever he pleases, causing me to speak or to cry out, and I hear the words as if they were spoken by myself, but I am altogether unable to restrain them. And when I try to engage in prayer, he attacks me more violently, thrusting out my tongue. Okay. <laughs> so after, after trying these, you know, other holy sites, Kramer takes the man to the church of St. Peter. And in this church, there was a column that was taken from the temple of Solomon. Jesus Christ supposedly stood next to this very column. And this is why it's thought to have the power to cast out demons. Um, and so it's used Nicely. in exorcisms. After spending at least one day and one night at this place and having gone undergone exorcisms again, people asked the demoniac priest, where Jesus stood. In response, the priest bit the column with his teeth and said, he stood, here he stood. And then he said, I will not go forth. These are pretty weird stories so far. Where are we going? So someone asked the demoniac priest why he would not go forth. And he answered- Into the column? Like, what? That doesn't even mean anything. Okay, continue. Yeah, well, I think what it means is that the demon is saying he's not going to come out. Okay. So someone asked the demoniac priest why he would not go forth, and he answered in Italian, a language that the priest did not speak. So the demon accused people of engaging in sinful practices, especially the worst vice of lustfulness. After this incident, the priest asked Kramer what the words that had come out of his mouth meant, and Kramer translated them for him. And the priest said that he had heard what came out of his mouth but couldn't understand it because he doesn't speak Italian. Eventually, this man is cured, and what it takes is the Climbing work- the tree? It, interestingly, it doesn't seem to happen because of the tree. What happens is that a bishop, a bishop, a bishop takes compassion on him, and this bi bishop fasts on bread and water for 40 days, and prays and conducts exorcisms on the, on the demoniac priest. In the end, uh, he is cured through this. And so he is sent back home, having been cured. The same historian that we've been talking about in this episode, Hans-Peter Brodel, he wrote about this very story in his book. And I'm going to have you read what, what he wrote. Oh, right. Hans-Peter Brodel says, The notable thing about this saga is the way in which demoniac possession becomes an aspect of witchcraft, almost wholly unrelated to the demon himself. The demon even comments in a detached way 
upon the priest's predicament. He has no stake in the witch's quarrel. quarrel. He has nothing personally to do with the entire process. Under other circumstances, a young man possessed by a demon, raving presumably about sodomy, would have... <laughs> ironic. Um, raving presumably about sodomy would have at least raised eyebrows. Because sin is so often provided the occasion for possession, a demon's dialogue with its exorcist, and especially its commentary upon the spiritual state of the possessed and of others, was naturally a considerable of considerable interest. Yet, to Kramer, the words of the demon do not pertain to the subject at hand, witchcraft. Hence, he reports them merely as curiosities. The cause of possessions, uh, Kramer seems to suggest, is found beneath the trees rather than buried in the soul. So basically, he's saying, like, this is weird because this witch did it, right? Is that what they're getting at? Like, that's what I Kramer guess, thinks? That, like, because this witch did it, it's what makes it so different than the other possessions he's experienced? Well, I think I think what what he's getting at is that is that there's not all that much attention paid to perhaps what the priest did in terms of sin. Ah, okay. Right? So, as a, so when you were talking earlier about, like, who Hilarion blamed, right? right? Like, often in this time period, we would have blamed that priest for sinning in some way to let the demon in. At least we might have. I mean, maybe we wouldn't because we will never actually accuse powerful men of things, but, Amen. but you know, I mean, at least it should have raised the question. But in this case, this guy was wholly innocent because the evil woman hath done it upon him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, one of the things that I... I... It's funny to hear the demon called innocent in all this, too. It's, it's just a... Yeah. yeah, internal logical consistency, people. So let's 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 to make this comparison between the story that we talked about from Saint Jerome's uh, writings to this one from the Malleus Maleficarum. So in both cases, we have a witch who buries some objects, and that causes possession. Right. So we have ideas that are a, a tradition of ideas that is continuing over a thousand years, but things are starting to look different. The witches are pretty different. In Jerome's story, the witch is a young man. He gets his powers by studying with a priest of Asclepius for a year, and he uses those powers to try to get a young woman to fall in love with him. In the story for the Malleus Maleficarum, the witch is, as she almost always is, an obstinate woman. Um, and she uses her powers to get revenge on a member of the clergy. So she's attacking an innocent holy man, right? So in Jerome's story, Hilarion concludes that the young woman who was possessed had in some way caused her own possession. Presumably she had sinned somehow. In this way, Hilarion argues that she made herself vulnerable to the possession, and he chastises her at the end of that story. And yet we never talk about the dude who spent a year learning witchcraft to bury things under there to let the demons in. Got it. Well, to be fair to Hilarion, I, that guy wasn't there to yell at, but... But the witch wasn't there in Rome either, and yet she got all the blame. <laughs> so, the the story from the Malleus Maleficarum... Did you really just say to be fair to Hilarion? Because I'm not over it. <laughs> It's not that I, I feel a, a great need to defend Jerome or Hilarion, yeah, but... Did. So, the story from the Malleus Maleficarum might have caused us to ask similar questions, like, was this priest feeling guilty about 
having done something or perhaps engaged in sodomy or maybe he even felt guilty about his mistreatment of this woman. But the authors of the Malleus Maleficarum appear to think that witchcraft is powerful enough that it can uh, cause a man, a holy man, to be possessed. Even though that would be rare, as they mention in the book, since God protects these men. Um, there's nothing in this story that might make us think that this demoniac priest is being punished for sin. It seems like... Well, I mean, if a woman's the one who determined he was sinful, then it can't be real, so... <laughs> it seems like the priest is attacked specifically because he is an enemy of sin. So we see here the power of witches, their, their ability to come out and threaten everything that is good and holy now. This, there, there is a, an increase in witchcraft at this time period, according to men like Kramer and Springer. Whereas before, they were just people we could go to to increase our own power when we can't get enough as men to get women to do whatever we want. Indeed. I still, like, I know you want to focus on, like, the lack of, like, talking about the sin of this priest, but I still can't get over, like, the role the, like, the witch or the magician plays in these two stories and how prominent yeah she is in this story as, like, the cursing witch and how, like, not even barely mentioned, like, in the other one, like, that, yeah. Yeah, anyway, um, that is the story I wanted to tell you for the Malleus Maleficarum for this episode. Okay, so next, part two, um, the Hammer of Witches is going to talk about how more we get to get more into how witches are to blame for every single thing that ever was inconvenient for a man ever. <laughs> so we are going to look at how the Malleus Maleficarum uh, talks about why women in particular are likely to be witches. So we're going to dig deeper into the misogyny of the Malleus Maleficarum. It is a an incredibly misogynistic book, and we're going to get to some be? of the heart of that misogyny next time, and kind of look at the way they present women's minds in a way that uh, is, How I guess, interesting. How and evil they are. Well, yes, all of those things. Mm. Well, lifelong obstinate woman here. Can't wait. <laughs> so in the meantime, I want to invite our listeners to check out our website at neurodescent.com. There you can find information about this and all of our other episodes. Uh, you can find uh, our reference list of open access sources if you want to check out these things on your own. Meanwhile, keep being obstinate and fee ye black monks! <laughs> also, please subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening. Unless you're a black monk. If you're a black monk, you can subscribe too. <laughs> we only care about the subscriber numbers it's <laughs> quantity not quality anyway until next time bye bye bye